Good morning. Um, if you're new with us, my name's Tim Deal. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us. Hope you're having a great holiday weekend. For some of you, I know you're enjo- <clears throat> excuse me, you're enjoying celebrating uh, Labor Day and having an extended weekend. For others, you're enjoying the kickoff of the college football season. Uh, so wherever you're at in that, I hope you're enjoying yourself this weekend. We're really glad that you're with us this morning. This uh, was a clip from the film Life is Beautiful. I don't know if you remember that movie. Uh, the, if you've been around, we don't often do uh, subtitles, so that was new. I, I apologize if in the back you had a hard time reading them. This film is, is in Italian, uh, but in 1997 it won the Best Foreign Language Film. Uh, I believe it won Best Actor for Roberto Ben. Benjini, I think is how you pronounce his name. Uh, he directed and starred in the film. And it's a really, it, you know, it's, it's a very moving, kind of heartfelt film. It, it's, of course, about the Holocaust. And now, for our younger kids, I know that you probably thought this was Harry Potter when you saw the train. I apologize when we got you all wor- if we got you all worked up about that. Um, but yeah, so it, it's about a father named Guido who ends up in a concentration camp with his wife and son, and they're separated, of course. And in this scene, you kind of see the setup for the rest of the movie, where he's, he's realized that the only way his young son is going to be able to survive the, the horrors of a concentration camp is if he can help him to focus his mind on something else. And so he creates this idea of a game that they're playing, that if, if they win, if he's able to not not cry for his mother, to, to not cry for, for snacks and for food, if he's able to be a tough boy, that he could win a, a real tank. And it's, it's a fascinating kind of thought experiment, and of course it's a cute movie. But the idea that, that the father has, that his son, what's going to enable him to survive is about what he focuses his attention on during this time. It's a fascinating idea. Well, we are this week uh, wrapping, wrapping up a series we've been in for the last couple of weeks in the book of Philippians, which is a, a small book, a, a letter really, in the New Testament that one of the early church leaders, Paul, writes to, to a church. And in this small letter, we've talked about the fact that he mentions joy over and over and over again, more than any other book in Scripture. And so we've been asking the question, what, what can we learn about joy from Paul? Because he writes this letter from prison. And so it's a little bit counterintuitive that someone would be writing a letter from prison and yet talking about his joy and encouraging others to have joy. It's not exactly what you would expect. So what can we learn from this letter about how Paul finds joy, even in difficult situations, and how we might learn from him as people who are looking to follow in the way of Jesus and learn from Paul? So this week, we're going to uh, kind of finish up with the, the last chapter. We're going to look at chapter 4, uh, verses starting in verse 8 through verse 13. Um, we're going to have the scriptures up here on the screen, so you can follow along. If you have a Bible, you can follow in there as well. And again, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to invite you to take one. We have a bunch of Bibles sitting on the, uh, on the bar out there in the foyer area, so you can grab one and take it home as our gift to you. We'd love for you to have one. So we're going to start in, again, chapter 4 verse 8, and read down to verse 13. Paul writes, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. 
Keep putting into practice all you've learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. All right, so as we kind of bring this to a close, we've looked at a lot of different things that Paul has mentioned, just to kind of give you, kind of bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us. Uh, Paul talks about the, the key to joy as being living as though we're part of a bigger story this thing that God is doing in the world through Christ in us and through us to bring justice and beauty and love, to kind of to see ourselves as part of this bigger thing that God is doing in the world. Seeing others and ourselves as a work in progress, having grace with others, having grace with ourselves, because all of us are growing and changing. Focusing not just on our own needs and our own wants, but on contributing towards the needs of others, being others-focused, recognizing our need for forgiveness and being people who are learning to forgive others and ask for forgiveness for ourselves and living in hope that Christ will one day make all things new, that there will be a day when things are the way they ought to be and that we're a part of bringing that even now as we follow Christ together. This week, we're going to look at what I think is one of the kind of underlying themes that we see throughout the story. And we've kind of talked about it, but we've never said it explicitly. And I just kind of want to land on it this morning as we wrap up. And that's, uh, we, we see it in the one passage as Paul mentions. He kind of, as he, as he summarizes all of this, he says, and now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. This is the thing, all right? So he's, he's ending the letter. And, you know, when you kind of wrap up talking to someone, you, you, you kind of emphasize the really important thing at the end, right? Pay attention to this. This is the last thing you're going to hear. It says, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Paul emphasizes here at the end that joy ultimately is a choice that you make. It's something that you choose to do. It's not simply a product of our environment not something that happens to us, it's something that we choose. Now, we don't often think about feelings, about things like joy in that way. We often see feelings as something that kind of happened to us as a result of our environment, as, as a result of experiences that we're having. These are things kind of outside of our control that just kind of naturally rise up in us. We don't see ourselves as choosing. But it's interesting our default reactions tell us a lot about where our attention is. How we, our our knee-jerk reaction to our experiences speak volumes to us about the kinds of things that we think about. So there's this kind of growing movement, um, growing, I, I should say, realization among the, the scientific community, those who study the brain, that You've probably heard at different times this idea that, you know, the brain is very malleable when you're young, but after you hit adolescence, it kind of solidifies. You know, it goes from being like Play-Doh to being a bit more 
kind of firm, right? That, that the, the decisions you make early on shape your brain in permanent ways. But more and more, there's, there's this kind of growing uh, study of, of the brain called neuroplasticity, this idea that the brain is actually, at, at any age, is a fairly plastic organ. Now, uh, it's easier when you're younger to learn things true. But at any age, you're capable of shaping your, your brain, of, of shaping your thought patterns, of kind of developing patterns of thought and action. That the more you think a certain way, the more you do certain things, the more you shape these, these pathways in your mind, these neural pathways that make certain actions habitual, default for you. But it largely depends on the kinds of things you think about, the kinds of practices that you engage in regularly. So for example, for many of us, and to kind of look at it from a negative end, many of us, our default response to most of what we experience in the world is worry and anxiety. And it's easy to understand why. There's no shortage of terrifying information, right? I always thought it was, would be terrifying to live in Oklahoma because of the tornadoes. But just yesterday, I found out there also are earthquakes. And so, you know, there, at any time, anywhere, we can learn about horrible things happening all over the world. Apparently, in South Carolina, there are really creepy clowns that are trying to lure children into woods, which terrifies me about all woods everywhere. Right? So like, there, there's always something we can find to worry about. And the more we, we do that, the more we feed that in us, the more we choose to focus on worry and anxiety, the more that pathway gets well-worn in our mind and the easier it is for us to go there again and again. It becomes our default to worry. Or maybe being discontent. Think about how... The more time you spend on Facebook, the, probably the more likely you are to be discontent with your life. The more time you spend looking at other people, looking at how they spend their time, how they spend their money, the size of their house, the kind of car that they drive, the more time you spend looking out there at others, the more likely you are to be discontent with your life no matter how good it might be. Being discontent rarely has anything to do with actually what your life is like. It's usually directly proportional to how much time you spend looking at other people's lives. Or for those of us who tend to be really cynical, it's pretty easy to find reasons to be cynical about religion, about leaders, about all sorts of things. And particularly with the advent of the internet, we can always find stories to back that up. And we can spend time thinking about all of these things that back up our cynicism. And the more we do that, the more we, we meditate, we think about those things, the more well-worn that cynical path gets, and the easier it is for our default to be cynicism. The things that we think about, the things that we meditate on, 
And we don't often think about it that way. We don't think about it like we're meditating. We often think about meditating as something someone might do with their legs crossed in a yoga class or someone someone might do quiet in their room. But meditating is what all of us do all the time. It's, it's the thoughts that we allow to churn in our head over and over again. It's where we focus our attention. The things that we meditate on form well-worn grooves in our mind that determine how we respond to our experiences of the world. But the good news is we can change those. It, it takes some work, but we can do it. Paul is pointing out a really deep psychological insight here that what we focus on has the power to shape who we are and how we respond to our environment. So I recently started um, walking regularly in the morning, which I know, you know, I'm not, I'm not that old, I'm 39, and I feel like, really, that's the best I could do, walk, right? Like, so many people are, are taking up, like, really kind of laborious hobbies that actually have some kind of clear value. For me, walking is just, it's like the first, it's like the baby step in exercise, right? Like, you know, my wife has for, for a long time been saying, you've got to do something. You're not getting any younger. You know, you got to kind of, you, you got to do something that's active. Um, and, and she's right. And I keep telling her, yeah, you're right. I know. But I just never felt like I had time, right? Because, well, I got to get up early to get my, my kids on the bus or on the bus or, or to get them to school. And, and I, I've got, you know, may, maybe I should shower. There, there's, breakfast occasionally, like there's different things I have to do in order to get out of the house so I can actually start working uh, at a decent time so that I don't feel like I have to stay in the office all day or, or have to plan meetings at, at night that I can't fit in during the day. Like there's all of these reasons why I can't, I can't get up earlier because then, then I have to stay up late because what adult goes to bed before 11 p.m., right? And so I always felt this sense of I need to stay up late and, and do work at night. And so then I'd, I'd sit up till like 12 or 1, checking emails, sending emails, working on admin stuff. And so then I couldn't get up early. And, and it was this cycle, right? But in my head, I just told myself, I don't have time. I, I don't have time for this. How do people find time to exercise? And then finally, I decided, okay, I, I, I just I need to do this. I, I need to take some baby step. And I knew if I said, okay, I'm going to start running, that would last about 30 minutes. And then... I'd be like, yeah, that's why I don't run. That just, that, this is why I don't do this. And I'd go back to sleep. And so I, I had to start small. I had to start manageable. And so I'm walking, right? And, and it's a little, you know, it's a, it's a little disheartening when people that I know are constantly, like, running past me in the morning. And they're like, wait, they're like, hey, who's the old? Oh, it's Tim, right? Um, but it's working, right? So I'm getting up every morning, and I'm walking. I have to get up, at, you know, I'm, I'm walking at, like, 5.30 in the morning. And... And it was really, really difficult the first couple of days because in my head, I still had this narrative of, you know, I have to stay up late to get things done. And then the later I would stay up, the harder it was to get up in the morning and you hit the snooze and yada, yada, yada. You know how that goes. But eventually, I just had to go, okay, I'm just going to try and go to bed at 10. It sounds crazy. I can't even, saying that sounds so weird. And I know you're like, welcome to adulthood. How did it take you so long? But... Seriously, I, so I finally started like, okay, it doesn't matter that I feel like I should stay up and work for two more hours, I'm going to go to bed at 10. And I started doing it. And the first couple of nights, it was really difficult, right? Like I'd lay in bed going, oh my goodness, there is so much I could be doing right now. It's such a waste of time. 
But eventually, right, like when I started going to bed at 10 and getting up at 5.30, doing it again and doing it again and walking, I began to think differently about the choice I was making. And I began to see, like, actually, there's a lot of advantages to this. I kind of, I, I'm not being chased out of bed by my alarm clock and all of the things I have to do before I need to go to work, before I need blah, blah, blah. I'm choosing things that I want to do early in the day that set me up well to begin this and, and, and have a, a better experience of my day. And then I'm choosing to go to bed early. And even the thought, the, the process of going, I'm not just going to go to bed when I can't keep my eyes up anymore, or my eyes open anymore. I'm going to go to bed when I want to go to bed because then I can wake up when I want to wake up. Even changing that little bit of thinking was this incredibly empowering experience. Where I'm like, oh, what my day looks like is up to me. I get to choose. And the more I thought about it that way, the less I thought, ah, really, I'm going to go to bed at 10? The more I thought, all right, I'm going to go to bed at 10 so that I can wake up and do what I want to do in the morning. And it's not like it's easy. Sometimes I would still really like to just kind of stay up until 11.30 or 12. Those pathways are still pretty well worn. But more and more, as I choose to do it, and as I choose to change the way that I think about it, it becomes easier, more enjoyable, more life-giving to make this choice that just a couple of weeks ago I couldn't imagine having time for. And I think this is kind of what Paul is talking about, that we, get, we, we are able to choose what we focus on, what we give attention to, in a way that shapes not just the way that we think, but our, our minds. That Paul's not just talking about ideas, but he's talking about the actual stuff of reality. The way that we think shapes who we are becoming, the kind of people that we are. It enables us to be people whose default reactions are not manipulated by our external circumstances come out of a different kind of life. We can have joy even in the midst of difficulty because we choose it. Henry Nouwen, uh, author, professor, spiritual guru, says this. He says, joy is what makes life worth living. But for many, joy seems hard to find. They complain that their lives are sorrowful and depressing. What then brings the joy we so much desire? Are some people just lucky, while others have run out of luck? Strange as it may sound, we can choose joy. Two people can be part of the same event, but one may choose to live it quite differently than the other. One may choose to trust that what happened, painful as it may be, holds a promise. The other may choose despair and be destroyed by it. What makes us human is precisely this freedom of choice. What makes us human is precisely this freedom of choice, the ability to not just be moved around by our external circumstances, but to choose what we're going to focus on, who we're going to become, to determine what kind of person we're going to be. There's a woman named Sarah Frankel who uh, attended the University of Northern Iowa, and about 20 years ago, I believe, 20 years ago, uh, she was in a car accident. 
uh, coming back, she's on her way back from home to school on a Sunday afternoon. She was rear-ended. And in this car accident, it, it kind of spurred on a, a gene that she had in her body for something called ankylosing spondylitis. I'm sure that is not how you actually pronounce it, but it's ankylosing spondylitis, something like that. And basically, it's this condition where your spine, your vertebrae fuse uh, together. It causes significant pain, debilitating pain in some cases. And gradually over time, Sarah, who was writing for a, a magazine, became unable to leave her house. She was, the pain was crippling. She couldn't, she just couldn't function outside in normal everyday life. And so she became homebound. And she began blogging. But Sarah, because in large part of her, her deep faith, saw this horrible situation as an opportunity to invite people to experience joy regardless of what they were going through. And so she, she wrote this blog that was full of hope that called other people regularly to the idea that even in the darkest circumstances, there is reason to be hopeful. There is reason to find joy. Just before she passed away on uh, September 24th, 2011, at the age of 38, she said this. She said, I appreciate my life because it's the one he, God, has given to me. And I don't want to waste a moment of it wishing for anything else. Isn't that a remarkable statement? Don't want to waste a moment of it wishing for anything else. More than anyone probably that you or I know, Sarah had lots of reason to shake her fist at God and say, this sucks. This is not the way life ought to be. You know, I'm, as a late teen, being put in this position to live with chronic pain, being homebound by her mid-20s, dying at 38. This is not the life she had dreamed of. It's not what she had wanted. And yet she was able to find joy. And not just find it for herself, but invite other people into it as well. And I think she did it by tapping into what Paul's talking about here in this passage. Note what Paul says again. He says um, back in verse 12, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Paul emphasized contentment as a key part of finding joy in whatever situation you're in. Contentment. Contentment is, is simply being satisfied with your life rather than longing for another. Contentment is choosing not to size everyone else up and figure out if you're getting ahead, if your life is a little bit better than theirs. But no matter what circumstance you're in, choosing to be grateful for the life that you have. 
for Paul, contentment recognizes that joy isn't found somewhere out there, but it's actually found as we learn to trust friends. To trust that whatever situation we're in, no matter how good or how difficult, that God is able to bring life and beauty and hope and meaning. Even when we're in a situation we would never want. That as we trust Christ, joy emerges. In one of his other letters, in Galatians, in the New Testament, Paul talks about what he calls the fruit that's produced in someone by the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit at work in their life. He says this, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He talks about joy as a fruit that's a product of the Spirit's work in our lives. Now, at this time, you might be saying, now, wait a second, that sounds a bit like a contradiction, because you just said that we were to choose joy, and now you're saying that joy is something that emerges as a result of something that God is doing in us. So which is it? Do we choose joy, or does joy emerge as a result of God's spirit work in us, at work in us? And I would say yes. Right? Like, yes, actually. The answer to that question would be yes. And paradoxically, that's, that's kind of the answer to a lot of those kind of questions. Right? So, so the question of, you know, does, whose responsibility is it to bring about justice in the world? Is it God's responsibility, or is it ours? Actually, yes. Right? Uh, if I have a friend who is kind of exploring spiritually and, and they have questions, uh, whose responsibility is it to, to engage them in those conversations? And, you know, it, it, don't I just kind of trust that God will do something or do I need to say something? Yes. I mean, again and again, we see this remarkable kind of paradoxical relationship of God's work in, in and through humans all throughout the scriptures. It's that God is at work, but he invites people to join in and actually be a part of carrying out that work in the world. It's not just that, you know, our job is to kind of believe the right things and then kind of make sure other people believe the right things and God will just take care of everything else. It's that we get to join God in what he's doing. That as we become followers of Christ, we, we grow God's heart for justice and life and beauty in the world. So much so that we become how God brings it about here and now. And again, as we talked about last week, we trust that, that one day God will, God will make it all right completely and fully. But right now, the primary way that God chooses to do that stuff in the world is in and through those of us who follow him. So the answer of, is joy a choice that we make or is it something that emerges within us as we open ourselves up to the spirit work, Spirit's work? The answer is yes, absolutely, both are true. It's not really unlike love. And I don't mean kind of romantic love where you, you see someone who's attractive and you start doing irrational things. Um, I mean kind of 
love that's about choosing to love someone, the love that happens when you know someone for more than just you know, a few days, right? Like when you choose into loving someone, anyone who's done that knows that it takes significant effort. But a remarkable thing happens when you stop waiting for someone else to convince you they're worth loving, when you actually start loving them, choosing to love them, choosing to actively care for their well-being. Something emerges within you that wasn't there before. You know the quickest way to turn an enemy into a friend? Start actively working for that enemy's good. And remarkably, something like compassion or empathy begins to emerge in you. Many of us have experienced this in some of our closest relationships. As soon as you wait for the other person to make you decide to love them, you know, you're, whenever you're doing that, whenever you're waiting for the other person to be lovable, it never happens, right? Like they're never good enough to be lovable, just like you're never good enough to be lovable. But when we stop waiting for them and just start loving, love emerges in miraculous ways. And it's the same thing with joy. It's this mystery where we choose joy and we're surprised by our experience of it at the same time. When we choose to be joyful, we suddenly begin experiencing joy in unexpected places. Because we, we kind of create those well-worn paths, eventually joy isn't always a choice. It becomes our default position. Wherein something difficult happens and we're more able to respond with joy and sometimes it even surprises us. Like, huh, I'm not really anxious right now. That's Interesting. Or I'm not, I'm, I'm not suddenly just going cynical like I used to. It catches us by surprise. But it's because we choose joy again and again and again. Wes Stafford, who uh, was the president and CEO of Compassion International, said this again about joy as a decision. He said, joy is a decision, a really brave one about how you are going to respond to life. It takes a lot of courage to choose joy. Because if you think about it, most of our default responses are self-protective, right? Fear, anxiety, these are things that cause us to kind of go in and protect ourselves, which feels a bit more comfortable. Joy isn't about protecting yourself. Kind of the opposite. Joy straightens your back and moves you forward into the world, even when the experience is challenging, difficult, uncomfortable. Joy calls us out, not in. So it takes courage, but it's well worth it. Paul invites us to choose joy so that we can be people who live lives that are full of joy, regardless of the situation we find ourselves in. So a couple of takeaways to think about with that, and then we're going to actually do something responsive together. We don't, we don't often do this, but we're going to try something a little different this morning. A couple of things to think about, some, some ideas 
some things to, to take away with you if you're interested in changing your default position and beginning to wear in some grooves um, in your mind, some, some joy grooves, if you will. Number one, gratitude is key. Gratitude is the tool that you use to build those channels in your kind of neural pathway. Choosing to be grateful, to recognizing. It's the opposite of being discontent, right? Like, so contentedness and gratitude are very similar. It's choosing to recognize what is and be grateful for it, not longing for something else. Gratitude, practicing gratitude is key to living a life of joy. Number two, being present in the moment. Again, these, in some ways, these, these words are almost synonymous. Being present in the moment and being grateful for what is. So many of us live either in the future or in the past, right? And so we live with anxiety or with regret. We look to the future and anticipate what horrible things might happen, and we're full of anxiety and fear. Or we look to the past and all of the mistakes that we've made because we're human, and we all do, and we live with regret and shame. Being present in the moment is receiving this right now as a gift, as the life that we've been given being grateful for it. So living with gratitude, learning to be present in each moment. And then interestingly, I think memorizing scripture is actually a really helpful tool toward living a life of joy. For some of us, um, we've never kind of grown up in a tradition that emphasized this. Maybe we're kind of new to church in general, and the idea of memorizing scripture seems a little weird. For some of us, we might have grown up in a tradition that pounded this in our head, and so we kind of want to, really? Like, we don't want to do that. But if you think about it, you're always meditating on something. Right? There's always something that you're meditating on, that you're chewing on, that you're telling yourself about how the world is, what's true. When you memorize something, you have instant access to it at any time. Right? And so part of the beauty of memorizing scripture is that it, invite, it allows you to call up into your mind at any time what we believe to be true about who God is and who we are and what it means to live with him in the world. And so when you're tempted to beat yourself up over past events, you can remind yourself, you can call up scriptures that remind you of, of God's love his grace, his forgiveness. When you're tempted to be anxious about the future, you can remember things that Jesus said about not being afraid, and you can, you can chew on them and, and meditate on them again and again. Memorizing scripture can be an incredible tool to give you access to ways to, to carve out really positive pathways in your mind that you can't get to on your own. You can't, you can't just make it happen without some help from someone else, without, without having a sense of what God thinks about this particular situation. And memorizing scripture can be a really helpful way to do that. So I'd encourage you, if you've never done this, or maybe if you have, but you've kind of set it to the side, consider taking some time this week to find something, and, and you know, again, if this is if this is new, maybe start with Jesus, right? Go to the teachings of Jesus, 
And if there's a particular thing that you struggle with, you know, if you can identify there's something like, like you're someone who, who's prone to anxiety or fear, someone who's, who's prone toward guilt and shame, you know, finding some, some places where Jesus speaks to those things and committing those to memory, taking a couple of moments every morning to just kind of repeat them over and over again. Maybe you write them down somewhere and stick them somewhere on your desk or on your computer, somewhere you can see them in your car. But taking some time to commit those to memory so that you have easy access to, to meditating on things that carve positive pathways in your mind that help you find the default position of joy so that you can choose joy and so that joy can emerge in your life in new and surprising ways. We're going to... We're going to practice a little bit of this this morning together. Um, so you, you might have noticed we have amazing artwork here that's at, uh, curated by Kristen Albright and it's been donated by my many wonderful artists. And you can see uh, I've contributed this morning. Um, my pieces are up here under these lights and in the back. There's four different squares. It's a little abstract, um, so you can do what you want with that. Um, but actually what we're going to do is, you'll notice if you're on the ends of either rows, there are uh, bright post-it notes. And what we're going to do this morning is I just want you to take some time to think about what you are grateful for. What things in your life bring you joy. These could be people. It could be, I don't know, food. It could be, I don't know, it, it, it could be any number of things, activities that you love. Think about, we're going to have just a few minutes. We're going to take about three minutes. Dave's going to come up, he's going to play some song. We're just going to take some time quietly to reflect on that. And I want you to write down, you pass the, I'm sorry, you take the, if you're on the end, take the post-its and pass them down. You can take one or two. And I want you to use the post-it. We got, we're going to have some pins coming around, uh, Brenham and Fellows, if you guys can help me out, they're going to be walking around with some boxes. If you need a pen, stick your hand up, and they'll get you a pen. Um, and I just want you to kind of write down what's something you're grateful for. What's something in your life or someone in your life that brings you joy? You know, maybe it's music, art, whatever. Write it down. You don't, don't put your name on it. And then I want to invite you during this time to kind of move forward, what, whichever square is closest to you, and stick your post-it within the square just kind of as a visual way for us collectively to respond, to, to choose joy together this morning. Um, I know this is a little weird. We don't often do stuff like this, but I, I invite you to try. It takes courage to be joyful. It takes courage to uh, step up and walk forward with your post-it and stick it on the square as well. Um, so let me, let me pray for us, and then Dave's just going to lead us into a few minutes of, of reflection and then we'll finish up with a worship song. Father, um, I'm really grateful for this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church and for his invitation to choose joy. I'm also really grateful that you created us to be people who live with joy even in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of experiences that often go sideways that aren't what we wish they would be. Would you help us, even this morning, to be able to choose joy, to choose to be grateful, to choose to be present, to think about those things that bring joy and happiness into our lives? And would you begin to 
to move us in such a way that we would be people who practice choosing joy again and again and again so that joy emerges in the most surprising and miraculous ways in the most unlikely of circumstances in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name.